0: This is John Anderson Direct with Erica Commissar. Please note that John Anderson
1: Direct is recorded live via online streaming, which means that sometimes the audio quality is less than optimum.
0: Erica Commissar is a New York-based clinical social worker, psychoanalyst, parent coach and author with 30 years of experience in private practice. A graduate of Georgetown and Columbia Universities and the New York Freudian Society, Erica is in high demand as a social commentator with the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Daily News, as well as being a regular commentator on television. And she can be found uh, in numerous places on YouTube as well. She's the author of Being There, Why Prioritising Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Uh, And I have the book here. It still generates a lot of discussion, as it ought to, four years after its publication in 2017. She's also the author of the forthcoming book, Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the Age of Anxiety, the New Age of Anxiety, and we'll talk a bit about that later. Erica, thank you very much for being with us. In your book, this one, Being There, you say, uh, I've always thought of myself as a feminist, and you give Sound reasons for that, uh, and yet, as you record, uh, you use an illustration. You're at a dinner party, and a good friend, um, you change her name, but accuses you uh, of not being true to feminism for the reasons we've probably all heard uh, you shouldn't have to interrupt your career, etc., for children. Before we discuss your research, how do you feel about this? Uh, this problem that many modern feminists think that your views are a threat to feminism and yet you see yourself as a, as a proud feminist.
1: Well, for me, feminism and, you know, in I'm almost 60. So for me, feminism was about choice. And for me, it still is about choice. Um, but how can you make the best choice if you don't have all of the information? So I believed when I wrote this book and And the the, the last book and the current book that I was providing people with information to make the best, most informed choice Um, for me, feminism was never about. Uh, making choices that were what I would call self-focused choices. You know, I think feminists really protect the rights of women, as as do I. Um, But I never, I suppose you could say I give the voice to those who are voiceless, and that means children, and children don't have a voice, and So, you know, as women, sure, we have choices, but we always have to consider that children didn't ask to be brought into this world and we have a certain obligation to them. Um, And so that means that our choices are influenced by that. I think that the book was also misunderstood when it came out four years ago to mean that women shouldn't work. Um, And it was never. And if you read the book, you know, people read the title and then they get scared and they get defensive. Um, But actually, you've read the book and, and the people who have read the book say, oh, well, she's not saying you can't work. She's saying you have to prioritize your children in those early years And also in adolescence, I'll talk to you, as you said, about these two books and why they're both similar and different. Um, But prioritizing our children over our work, um, and particularly in that first critical window of development of zero to three, is really important to lay down the foundation of healthy, secure attachment um, and emotional resilience, right? Resilience to stress in the future. So, um, and, and, That is my response to feminists, that it's not that you it's not taking away your choices. We always have to think about uh, when we're making choices, um, what we're sacrificing when we're making those choices.
0: Yes, I understand that. It's a strange age we live in where often feelings are so much more important than facts. And this book is absolutely chock-a-block with facts. Uh, uh, In the uh, you do a lot of myth busting in the earlier part of the book. And and there were things there. Always, I have my wife and I, we have four adult children. We have uh, now four grandchildren. So we're extremely interested in and very devoted to our kids. We've always seen them as more important than our work. And, and I, I say that quite freely, even when I was the deputy prime minister of this country, we we're about to celebrate September the 11th, 2001. I was acting prime minister. Our prime minister was in your country at that time. Uh, and uh, but, 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 our, the great joy in our life has been our children, and it's wonderful to see them carrying it on. But the, the facts that you come up with here, they're just so interesting. And as one little example, um, you, you actually say on page 49, this increase in the incidence of mental illness, which we'll talk about in a minute in children, is, I believe, connected to the increasing disinterest in and devaluing of mothering in our society. And yet in one of the myth-busting chapters that you have there, or, or sections, You describe what happens to, you know, what's going on in a baby that might look as though it's not responding in a section about, you know, uh, well, I'll come back and involve myself with my child when it interacts with me more. And you you outline some of the things that are happening really early on in the brain. And amazingly, I'd never heard this. You say that from around 48 hours, a baby can recognize a smile, discern it and try and respond. It's not just gas, as we often say.
1: (laughs) It's not just gas. That's right. So, you know, there is so much going on, you know, I think that many mothers and fathers don't really have enough information i don't think they're well educated about this and so by giving them the, the information as you said most people don't know they believe the myths they believe that babies are blobs and it doesn't matter if you leave them with strangers and um, they haven't really heard about attachment security or you know and and so by giving this information to parents i hope to influence them um, that from the moment that a baby is born they are neurologically fragile, incredibly vulnerable, particularly in that first critical window of brain development. Um, They are very susceptible to to the environment, and we are their environment. Um, And so You know, all of the research, uh, whether it's attachment research or neuroscience research or epigenetics research and all the psychoanalytic knowledge that I I have, um, all speak of this critical period of development, both brain development and emotional development, in terms of how powerful it is that mothers uh, or primary caregivers are, um, and that is usually the mother, are not just emotionally important to children, but they are biologically important to children's brain development. And that is something that most people don't know.
0: This is a really interesting aspect. It's not just that the baby's born like a computer that just has to be programmed up. Uh, You've actually, those early months determine whether or not the computer will be properly built before it can even receive the information, if I can put it that way.
1: That's right. So Attachment security lays down the foundation for whether children in the future can regulate their emotions. So what we're seeing is this epidemic of mental health disorders in children and adolescents. In America, the statistics now, I mean, the statistics are worse in the last four years. So they're worse since I wrote the first book. It's it's one in five children will suffer from a serious mental disorder in America. um, And you know, the statistics on medication are crazy. I mean, um, we have as much as 25% of children on some kind of psychopharmacological medication. uh, And by the time they are 18, higher than that. Uh, We also have crazy statistics in the last decade, um, the suicide rates in adolescents have tripled in America. So, I mean, we really have an issue worldwide, and I know the statistics in Australia are are as frightening about anxiety and depression and suicide. Um, And what we're seeing are disorders of emotional regulation, when, when one cannot keep their emotions from going too high or too low. And what mothers do in the first three years is they serve as emotional regulators. Uh, for babies from the outside, meaning babies cannot regulate their own emotions. When a baby cries and is in distress, when a mother soothes that baby from moment to moment, they are actually serving a biological function, which is they are regulating down regulating or upregulating that baby's emotions to get them to what we call homeostasis. And mothers do that from moment to moment to moment throughout the first three years. So when a mother disappears, when she is the primary attachment figure, when she disappears for long periods of time during the day, I don't mean going uh, leaving the baby with your mother for an hour so you can go for a walk or go to the supermarket or you know when you when you disappear for long periods of time, what happens is the baby's cortisol levels go up. Um, And the baby experiences great amounts of stress. And that stress, we know, is very, very inhibitive in the brain for healthy processes. Um, What we know is that mothers mothers produce something called oxytocin. It is... um, the love hormone. Euphemistically, it's the love hormone. It's a neurotransmitter that's produced when mothers um, give birth, when they breastfeed, when they nurture. um, And when mothers produce it and love their babies uh, and do that emotional regulation I just described, they then produce it in the baby's brain. And then the baby produces lots of it and passes it back, sort of like um, a baseball. I guess in my American terms, it's like throwing a baseball back and forth. I guess you could use, you know, saying a soccer ball. or But um, it's they throw the, the uh, oxytocin back and forth to one another. And it creates a buffer for stress. So we know that oxytocin and cortisol, which is the stress hormone, have an inverse relationship. The more oxytocin... Uh, the baby has in their body, the more oxytocin the mother produces and then the baby produces, the lower the cortisol rates, the less stress in that baby uh, and the healthier that baby will be. So it's really it serves a biological function, which is it decreases cortisol and increases wellness in that baby um, and helps to develop the right brain. Right. And what we know is that the right brain Uh, The prefrontal cortex, the right brain, is so critical for regulation of stress, regulation of emotions, reading social cues, um, having relationships in the future. I mean, I could go on and on. And the research is very clear. I never say anything, John, unless it is backed up with research. I never say anything out of opinion. Um, And I researched my first book for 13 years and read thousands of pieces of research before I wrote that, that first book.
0: Yeah, I'd make two comments there. The first is that, I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert in this area at all, but I've had a lifetime of trying to work out which briefs have been written because, well, because they're grounded in real information and which ones aren't, uh, and yours is just packed with information that makes it so credible. It's obvious to me that this is extraordinarily high-quality research. The second point is that that so much of this just confirms what we would have once called common sense. Um, Mm -hmm. I I just can't leave some of these amazing facts for a moment. I just have to refer to this one. Uh, You write, for the first few weeks, it may seem like a baby does nothing but eat, poop, and sleep, but the truth is very different. An infant is creating 40,000 synapses. Is that how you pronounce it? Um, connections between neurons in the brain per second. Yep. So there's a staggering amount of stuff happening there. And, and that's reflective of, of the, uh, the, the, the extraordinary medical knowledge that we now have that you've captured. So we can't run away from what's really happening. We wouldn't run away from a diagnosis if we were in any way sensible about our own health. So if we had a cancer or what have you, we'd want a proper diagnosis and we'd expect the right treatment for it, the right response. And yet that's not what's happening so often in the face of all of what we know about raising children.
1: Well, I think society has also become, everything's very fast. We talk fast, we walk fast, we eat fast, we move from activity to activity quickly. I think it's very hard... To imagine, um, I would say watching a baby's development is the most fascinating thing, but it's, it's probably more um, analogous to watching the grass grow, you know, or watching the seasons change um, rather than what I think is happening today, which is that we want quick results and we want to see things happen quickly. And so if you watch a baby, it is fascinating, but it's slow. Babies are slow. Um, you know, meanwhile, they're slow, but all this amazing development is happening behind their eyes. Right. Um, Every time they put something in their mouth, they're learning about the world. Every time they stroke your hair, every time you hold them, they are learning that um, their environment is a secure environment. So the father of attachment, his name was John Bowlby, talked about attachment being the relationship with the mother, being the scaffolding for, um, and he called it the scaffolding, the scaffolding for how that child will see relationships for the rest of their life, whether or not they will trust the people around them to be there when they're in distress, whether or not the environment is safe and trustworthy. And so when you're not there to create that scaffolding and what we call that emotional security, you are not then laying down the foundation for the future, for that child to both regulate their emotions, right, when you're not around, And also uh, to be resilient to stress and adversity in the future. It literally lays down the foundation for them to be able to cope when bad things happen in the future.
0: Two questions arising out of that to me. One is that if I understand the book, your research suggests that the way we parent is in part shaped, at least in part, by the way we were parented. Mm -hmm. So if we were, as a baby, if we did not experience the sort of bonding interaction that was optimal when we were young, we find it harder to provide it for our own. Have I sort of captured that? Is that a reality? Because you're seeing these long-term trends in Western society, and it does seem to become worse with each generation. Now, I'm sure there are many factors behind that. This fastness would be one of it. But as I understand it the research indicates, it's in part also related to your own experiences when you were a baby.
1: It's called generational expression. So um, we use the term inheritance of acquired characteristics, meaning you inherit from your parents um, learned experiences, the learned experience of them. Um, And and so that gets passed down generationally from parent to child. What we now know uh, from very famous research in in my field by a man named Michael Meany, He did research on how, um, he did animal research, but mammal research, which is very close to the human research. Um, He did research to show that when mothers licked and groomed their young, those young became more resilient to stress in the future. Whereas the mothers who didn't lick and groom their young, those, those youngsters were not as resilient to stress and adversity, but what he also found is that if a mother did not lick and groom her young, she did not pass down to that uh, baby the ability to lick and groom their own young. And the same goes with a mother who does lick and groom. That was then passed down to the next generation. So as you say, many generations go by where um, we call it generational expression of trauma. If you didn't have a mother with um, a secure attachment to that mother, because that mother couldn't nurture uh, or was absent a great deal of the time, and when she was there, she was distracted, what gets passed down to that baby is the inability then to nurture their own young, and so on and so forth. And what we've actually seen is that... um, you know, and many fields study this, is how trauma is expressed in our genes. Um, So epigenetics shows that um, oxytocin receptors, so to, to really appreciate oxytocin, you have to have what we call oxytocin receptors. So the baby has a catcher's mitt. The mother throws the ball. The baby has the catcher's mitt. The catcher's mitt are the receptors. If you don't have receptors, enough receptors, then you can't catch the oxytocin. What the research has shown is that, as generations go on um, with less nurturing, there are fewer there are fewer oxytocin receptors in the babies that are born to those mothers. So it actually changes our DNA.
0: Good, actually changes the DNA. This is I've, I've recently heard that some Holocaust surviving families' DNA is affected. That's the same exact- thing.
1: Exactly right. And in yoga, they remember there was a a yoga teacher that I interviewed for the book. And she said, in yoga, we believe that you hold. And again, you know, there's lots of research um, to prove this, that you hold trauma in your cells, that you actually it actually um, changes your DNA and your ability to cope with stress for generations. Um, so what we also know is that um, some babies are born with what we call a sensitivity. Um, it, it's, they they are more sensitive, um, biologically more sensitive um, to stress, and biologically more sensitive to stress means they are more likely to develop things like anxiety and depression. Um, and so there are more babies being born with. Um, Uh, you know, uh, an issue with their serotonin receptors, where they can't get the uptake of the serotonin as easily as another baby. Um, More babies than we knew are being born with this sensitivity. And what many mothers believe and what many pediatricians um, misunderstood to be colic, they used to say, oh, if your baby is you know, a little bit fractious, or if your baby was hard to soothe, or, you know, wouldn't, you know, sleep when you wanted them to sleep and was more in distress, yeah, um, that that baby had colic. And, you know, what we know now is that is not You know, all babies have digestive issues, but actually colic is really this emotional sensitivity, which is they're very sensitive to anything in the environment that's even a little bit off. Um, And what the research shows is if those babies get this sensitive empathic nurturing that comes from having lots of oxytocin and having your mother around a lot, The research shows that those babies who get that sensitive empathic nurturing have as good a chance of being resilient in the future as the babies born without that serotonin uh, intake uh, problem with their genes. So, um, you know, that's very powerful research, you know, to say that we can neutralize the expression of a gene just by being there for our babies, right? So, if you have a quote unquote colicky baby, which we know now not to be colicky, and you leave that baby at six weeks or eight weeks to go back to a full full full-time job, and you leave that baby in daycare, heaven forbid, you are basically prescribing for that baby um, potentially mental health issues in the future. And I say that uh, we can never know. Certainly, there's not a one-to-one correlation, but that is what we're seeing, that those babies are much more susceptible to their environment.
0: Well, that's quite fascinating. Now, to go where angels might fear to tread, it appears from the research that you um, so eloquently wrap up in this book that there's a difference between boys and girls, that boys are, in fact, uh, more likely than girls to suffer separation anxiety. Their cortisone levels are likely to rise. They become more anxious even than, than little girls. So they're different.
1: Well, we know that uh, more little boys are born in the world and more little girls survive. And the reason for that is that boys are fragile physically and emotionally, much more fragile. We also know that there are higher levels of autism in boys. um, And the research now that's being studied is that autism has a great deal to do with Um, cortisol in utero, that that even a fetus in utero is susceptible to cortisol. Um, And little boys are much more susceptible than little girls. That doesn't mean little girls aren't susceptible to stress. But yeah, boys tend to have a a stronger, more vigilant reaction to stress uh, than little girls. And um, we also see it in the aggression. So what we call the fight or flight response to stress Is basically an evolutionary response that human beings have to stress, right? When when we faced uh, a predator, uh, you know, a tiger, a sable tiger, uh, we either fought that tiger or we ran. Um, And what we're seeing in children, really, is uh, with this uptick of mental health issues, is um, an increase in ADHD. Uh, diagnoses, as well as an increase in aggression and behavioral problems. And those are the two sides of the coin. We have little boys who um, are becoming more aggressive at an earlier age. In fact, one of the studies on daycare showed that children who were put into um, many hours of daycare very early in their lives showed greater increases in aggressive behavior. Um, And boys show more aggressive behavior than girls. Girls show more depressive symptoms than boys. They are different, and their responses to stress are different. Um, And we're seeing this rash of ADHD and just children being, I mean, in America, I've I've written many articles in the Wall Street Journal and spoken out about the over-medication of children, that society does not want to ask the hard questions. Why are these children distracted? Um, and people want to label it as a disorder in and of itself when it is a reaction to stress. So ADHD, distractibility, is the flight part of fight or flight. Um, And so no one wants to ask, what is causing the stress for these children? Because that's a very hard question, and no one really wants to hear the answer. That's why I wrote the book.
0: This is a hard one, isn't it? We don't want to hear answers that might confront us with uh, our own failings and the need to change. Um, It strikes me that that some people listening to this, they might think, gosh, Eric is describing my children. Uh, uh, Can I ask a question? Because it's related to some things we've already talked about, the importance of, if you like, completing the building of the computer early on while you've got the opportunity. What happens if you get past that three or four years that you're talking about you recognise the damage. Can you go back and somehow correct it? And I'm thinking partly of the uh, experiences with the uh, Romanian uh, orphans, you know, uh, in the orphanages, and they just couldn't put their emotional lives, couldn't put themselves, they couldn't be put back together, to put it crudely. So much damage has been done.
1: Well, Charles Nelson at Harvard wrote that book, and that was a powerful sort of expose on what happens to children who are um, in extreme um, emotional poverty, uh, meaning who are extremely neglected. Um, the truth is that neglect is on a spectrum, but the kind of neglect that I write about is, is different than the Romanian orphans, but it is still very potent and powerful. Uh, there are some forms of neglect that cannot be repaired. And I say that to parents, that there are instances where you will not be able to repair everything that your child has suffered. But I think, you know, and my second book talks about you do have with children, Another chance, not maybe with children who are severely neglected, as the Romanian orphanages. But but most children are not in that situation. Most children have parents who love them, um, work hard. Uh, you know, put them in daycare. Don't spend as much time as they probably should. Uh, are more distracted when they're around them. Are not that interested in the, as you say, the the development of the child those children suffer in a different way. And and for those children, yes, you can repair some of that. You may not be able to repair all of it. You have another critical window of development, which is 9 to 25, which is what my second book is about. So my first one was about the first critical window of development. The second book is about the second critical window of development, where you have the ability to repair some of what happened earlier on and really maybe not completely, but create a foundation of emotional security for your adolescent young adult going forward. After 25, all bets are off. Uh, you've lost your influence over that child.
0: Right. Well, that's, that's, that in itself is very sobering. Um, on, the, on the issue of the unique roles of mothers, you've said quite a bit about fathering as well. You've said the research shows that fathers are not interchangeable with mothers but they also serve a critical function with babies in the first five years, which is, I hate to say it in Australia, I'm patron of the Australian Fathering Project, that's news to a lot of fathers. They think their job is just to support, it's extraordinary how few fathers actually, it goes back to a point we made earlier, people know surprisingly little about their children's needs. And to be blunt about it, in this country, the research is quite clear. Most fathers don't think they have a great role to play, particularly in the early years, and they start to engage when the kids play and interact. But you say they serve a critical function with babies in the first five years. Can you elaborate on that? What, what is it that they contribute? What's the vital role? Is it yeah. different and equally important or different and not as important? Uh, how do you see it?
1: It's different and equally important. And And I should give you a caveat here and say that there are many fathers who are serving as primary caregivers to their children. Their wives go out and are the main money earners and they are staying home with their children. And with those fathers, there is a lot that you can teach a father in terms of how to be a more sensitive empathic nurturer like a mother but first we have to admit that there's a difference we have a problem in society and that we don't we this this sort of gender neutrality i call it says that there's no difference between men and women and we know from biology that men and women um, respond to nurturing hormones differently. So we know that when mothers um, produce oxytocin, it affects their behavior in this way. It makes them what we call more sensitive empathic nurturers. They respond to babies' distress um, very vigilantly. Um, and are very sort of tuned in to the distressed emotions to get them back to that state of homeostasis. That's a healthy mother. There are lots of unhealthy mothers. Um, When a healthy father um, produces oxytocin, and he can produce oxytocin, it tends to come from a different part of the brain, and it has a different impact on a father's behavior, and that's a biological thing. a father who's loaded with oxytocin is more playfully stimulating with his baby. Um, He engages his baby through play and physical play and um, almost distraction from distress. And that is a biological response to oxytocin. Um, So it's not that fathers can't produce oxytocin, but they have a different behavioral response, there was an experiment done with intranasal oxytocin, because they're doing all these uh, research, you know, experiments on intranasal oxytocin to help with autism, to help fathers to be more nurturing. What they found is when fathers were given intranasal oxytocin, and then they were with their babies, they were more engaged with their babies, but they were still more, they were like hyper playfully stimulating. So they threw the baby up in the air more, they tickled the baby harder. They um, Fathers are critical to help children to separate from mothers. So, and the reason I'm saying that is their behavior, their nurturing behavior is to promote resilience, but you can't promote resilience before you've laid down the foundation of emotional security, which comes from sensitive empathic nurturing. So fathers play this critical role. So what we see in America is a lot of mothers by choice, single mothers by choice, women who are having babies by themselves and going to sperm banks and whatever. Um, And what we're seeing is that these babies can really attach to their mothers, but then they can't separate from their mothers. Um, there isn't that counterforce of a father's nurturing, which is playful and, you know, come away from your mother and it's great out here. We'll, you know, we'll roll around in the grass and play ball. And so this kind of help with separation is, is a critical role of fathers. The other thing that fathers do is mothers regulate distress and fear, sadness. These are the emotions that oxytocin helps mothers to, uh, they help mothers to, um, to to regulate. When I say regulate, mothers are very good at helping to regulate stress and sadness. Fathers regulate aggression. So when we see in research, I have a colleague, Alan Shore, he's very famous for his research on the importance of fathers. And he talks about how when fathers are not present for children at a young age, Um, Those those little boys become more aggressive because they have no one helping to regulate their aggression because mothers don't regulate aggression as well as fathers regulate aggression. So they really serve different functions. Right. Doesn't mean that in a gender neutral society, we can't teach fathers to be more like mothers and mothers to be more like fathers. But before we can teach something, you have to admit that you need to be taught. (laughs) You have to admit the difference. And I think the frustration as a therapist is the defensiveness, not the openness to say, gosh, organically, biologically, I am different, but I can learn this.
0: Uh, Fascinating. I I must say, when our kids were growing up, I noticed um, uh, very clearly uh, that all four children, boys and girls, look to mum for warmth and nurture, particularly if they'd stubbed their toe. They squeal with delight when they thought dad might provide some stimulation and play uh, and fun. Uh, and I also understand that from the research done by people like um, Warren Farrell and John Gray uh, in the book The Boy Crisis, that the dad's role is very important in teaching a child um Uh, delay, how to delay their gratification, which is critical to making good long-term choices later in life. Like I will make sacrifices now to spend time with my child so that that child grows up to be secure in the longer term. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're very, a father is of equal value as a mother, but they perform different functions for children. And I will say that is not socialization, that is biological. That is our biological response to our hormones.
0: So in a sense, uh, you know, I think your research suggests that there is such a thing as a natural fa- family unit. Uh, not, not, it's not just a matter of endless social constructs that can be manipulated to suit us. We actually have to take the data and the real needs of our babies into account.
1: Yeah, and I think that again, if society is not going back to only traditional families, we know that that families come in many forms. And I think I wrote this book because fathers can read this book. Fathers who are not primary caregivers should read the book so they understand and respect and admire their wives' role. But I think the fathers who are playing um, primary caregiving roles really need to read this book so they understand. What they need to learn to be more like mothers, um, and not just say we're all the same because we're not all the same. Um, so it it can work uh, to have a father raising a baby, or you know two women can raise uh, children, but they would need to have they would need the knowledge to know what fathers provide to either provide it for them as a father would, or to find substitutes or surrogates who would provide it for that child. We need both influences in our life. I think that's the point. So if you're a gay couple and you're raising a child, you need to bring in other influences. So there is, um, there are, there is that kind of balance in that child's uh, upbringing.
0: Coming to the practicalities um, for, for uh, parents having enough time with their newborns. Your research tends, I think, uh, to uh, confirm or to correspond with what a lot of women actually want. Um, David Goodhart in his book about somewheres and anywheres and Brexit makes the point that um, some British research suggests that around two thirds of British women would prefer not to have to work or not to have to work very long hours in the early uh, months of their child's or early years of their child's life. And uh, in your country, a 2013 a Pew Forum report showed that for most American mar- um, American mothers, part-time work would be their ideal situation. Um, I wonder, this is really a question about getting data and information out there. Uh, it seems to me that there was a time when the political left in my country, and certainly in Britain, were the champions of the family. They were the champions of the working class, and they were very committed to family. If anything, uh, the more conservative end of the political spectrum, they tended to sort of think, oh, I'll shove them off onto nannies. We don't have to worry about that. Seems that it's reversed, that now you get conservatives who are not flavour of the month banging on about the need for looking after children. A mainstream media, which is dominated you know, by left of centre, Uh, perspectives, you can't get this information out. And yet it seems to be critically important. Um, Has the the rhetoric, if I can put it this way, of the career woman and their boosters uh, had the unfortunate effect of leading policymakers to forget that for women, things need to be designed so that they really can, you know, fulfill that most important task of all, raising the future?
1: Well, I was very frustrated when I wrote the first book. I I mean, there was uh, the Wall Street Journal did a profile on me when the book came out because the most frustrating thing and the the profile was called the politicization of motherhood. Um, And in that, I describe my frustration, which is that I assume when I wrote this book that the left would, would absolutely support it because, you know, I was essentially... Uh, not an extreme liberal, but I was probably to the left of center liberal, um, I thought. Um, And I assumed that they would support the idea of putting children first, right? Putting children's psychological and emotional needs first. And that isn't at all what I found. What I found is that um, in an effort to guard women's rights, children's rights were thrown under the bus. (laughs) And On the right, however, they supported the idea uh, of, as you say, the right has really come out for family and and traditional values and uh, and nurturing is a good thing. So I found myself in the company of conservatives um, who were supporting my work. But when I said to those conservatives, we need to support this in the government, Uh, we need to have one year of paid maternity leave in America, uh, they they could not agree with that. So I found myself in this funny position of the right supported what I was saying, which is mothers need to be able to be with babies for longer than just six weeks or even three months, which is absolutely no time at all in that three year period of critical brain development. Um, but in saying that mothers needed to be around full time for the first year and then needed to be around as much as possible for the for up to three years, Who is going to pay for it, is what the Conservatives said. So I found myself in this funny crack between these two political parties, Um, one who rejected what I was saying entirely and the other who accepted it but wouldn't pay for it. Um, And so, yeah, that's still where I am. (laughs) i am still I am. Yeah, and the tragedy
0: of that is who loses? Our children.
1: The children lose. Yes, the children lose. And it became politicised. Yeah, and my book, sadly, in a way... Maybe because of the title, maybe because of, you know, it became politicized. It's not a political book. It is a book about the welfare of children, what children need to grow up to be mentally healthy and emotionally well. That is what it's a book about. And so it really isn't a political book. And I really... I, I, I hate to say, I mean, I'm saying I know to a former politician, I don't consider myself political. I consider myself an advocate for children and giving children a voice when they have no voice.
0: Well, the, our theme here with this show is that you can't get good public policy out of a bad or a truncated or a shutdown debate. And and a, a, a man of the left, who I, a man of a towering intellect that I was talking to recently, I respect him hugely. He said, you know, all the old labels about left and right have become redundant. And he said, I don't know what terminology we now use, but perhaps the division is between those who think facts and evidence and 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 hard reality has to be taken into account and those who think we can build our lives around our feelings and our hopes and desires alone. Perhaps that's the division. Um, but again, you know, it, the, the, the tragedy of this is that our children, who ought to be our most precious and loved commodity of all, well, they're not a commodity, um, thing in our lives, uh, are the ones missing out. And if I could come to, I understand your, your next book is subtitled Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. Now, that's important for children. I'm bringing children into the world and they're going to go into a classroom. Now, this is a very real thing in Australia. I, a couple of my children are teachers. Uh, and one of my children-in-law, uh, is uh, son-in-law, is a teacher, uh, and they see an incredibly disrupted uh, uh, sort of uh, micro-environment in the classroom, and you've got the raised children, I suppose, who are going to be able to cope with it from a very early age when there's a lot of anxiety. A, a double question, I think, isn't anxiety in the end fear? We've become very fearful, fearful Fear dominates us at every point now. We're afraid to make decisions. We're, we're convinced the environment is going to fall apart. Every age has a catastrophe. I'm not belittling it. I'm just saying every age has. We like to be anxious. It seems to be almost a default position, but we've really slipped into what, what might be called an age of, in, of, of anxiety, as you put it. Where's it come from? How has it become so bad that it's crippling so many of our children?
1: Remember the scaffolding that I mentioned earlier, John Bowlby talked about the scaffolding. So think about um, an an attachment disorder. So what we know is that something called an ambivalent attachment disorder is most closely associated with anxiety later on. Um, That's a child who is left too frequently for too long a period of time insensitively, or a mother who's physically present but emotionally insensitive to that child. And that child grows up with terrible fear Uh, of losing their mother and they grasp onto, you can see the ambivalent attachment disorder in very young children uh, at nursery school, what we call nursery school or preschool, yeah, here. Um, You can see them, or I suppose if you look in daycare, um, you can see those children grasping onto their mothers uh, when they go to daycare or nursery school. And when their mothers come to pick them up or when they go home, grasping again because of the fear that their mother will leave them again. Um, That then translates later on often into this anxiety, which is basically fear. That is what anxiety is about. It's about fear. Um, And remember that when you have a secure attachment, because you know that your mother's going to be there from moment to moment. Um, And even when you're a toddler, you're toddling off, and you're doing what a very famous psychoanalyst named Margaret Mahler called rapprochement, or emotional refueling, where you're able to toddle off and explore the world, but look back at your mother and toddle a little longer, and then run back and get a snuggle, and then go and toddle again. And that kind of checking, emotional checking, build layer by layer the emotional security that a child needs to go out into the world and deal with very scary things, right? We've always had scary things. I mean, the book that is coming out in October talks about the scary things. But, you know, I mean, the scary things today are academic pressure, social media pressure, global warming threats, political insecurity, um, in, you know, financial insecurity. But we've always had terrible things happening. We had a my parents' generation, there was a world war. Um, you know, people were going off to war and dying. Um, we had the Holocaust hanging over us. So uh, it's not as if there, there wasn't terrible stuff happening back then. Um, what's really changed is that our children are more vulnerable. And that's the question we should be asking. I mean, people want to focus on the outside. And I'm happy to accommodate and talk about how terrible social media is. It is. Terrible terrible, how terrible technology can be. It can be terrible, not always, but it can be, how terrible global warming threats are. Uh, But that isn't the cause of the anxiety. Anxiety is a base of fear that means that you go out into the world more vulnerable than you should be to all of the environmental things that could happen.
0: That's a fascinating and very important insight, Uh, astonishingly valuable. Uh, Because I've often felt um, in the debate in this country about climate change, uh, I saw a claim recently that 80% of Australian children have climate change anxiety. Now, when you explored it, actually, it was a multiplicity of things that are worried about. Will they get a job? Will they never be able to afford a home? They'll have to live at home with their parents forever. They won't have the same opportunities. Uh, There's a lot of evidence for some of their concerns, but it, it strips out hope. And here's the rub. In the face of what they see of insurmountable challenges, they give up hope rather than saying, well, let's go out and tackle those things. We've got to take them head on. And that's what we celebrate about what I think you Americans call the greatest generation, the people who lived through the Great Depression. They lived through the Second World War. They lived through the Korean War, the Cold War, the fear of the atomic uh, uh, destruction of us all uh, and, and and tackled it and took it on. They didn't give up hope. So it seems to me that we're creating an environment where our children will be overcome by the challenges rather than overcomers.
1: Well, again, I I hate to be sort of the crack on the record, but I'm going to say go back to that idea of scaffolding. When we believe that our environment um, is reassuring, is safe, is trustworthy, we believe that things will be okay. But when we come from a base of being from a very young age, frightened um, because we're so fragile. And we are, this is how I would put it. We like to adultamorphize children. That's a word I made up, but it's a good word. We basically project onto very young children and to adolescents, adult-like characteristics, that they are more resilient from birth than they actually are when they're incredibly fragile. And very fragile, neurologically fragile children are frightened in the face of absence of, so you know, you are their entire universe when they're little. A mother is a child's entire universe. That child lives and breathes for that mother to reassure them. And when you disappear for long periods of time and you just plunk them with a stranger or put them into daycare, which is a revolving door of care with strangers. You know, what you're doing is you're creating a base of fear instead of a base of security.
0: Well, I that base of security is obviously a chronic lack in the lives of many children. Uh, you've mentioned some of the uh, numbers in your own country. Uh, uh, I note here that uh, the National Institute of Mental Health has showed that there's been a 400% in mental illness uh, increase, a 400% in mental illness in children and adolescents in the last decade. And here in this country, almost one in three young females have a mental or behavioural problem and boys are not far behind. On some measures, they're they're in a worse place. Um, To touch on another issue, I um, often think that we fail to give them an overarching narrative. We have no story for them. And I wonder, and I think you've suggested, that perhaps the decline of our religious traditions is one of the causes. Do you have any uh, observations to make about the importance of um, a belief system to, uh, to our children's mental health?
1: Well, again, it, it gave them a security net. So a belief in faith or, uh, or participation in religion, it, it gave them another f- source of support. Um, It provided community, which is critical, which we've lost a lot of. But it also provided them with imagination. I mean, it allowed them to have, if you think of anybody who believes in God or faith, you know that they suspend reality to a certain extent and have an incredible imagination, meaning they're allowed to hold on to throughout their lives a certain childlike imagination, which is supportive in crisis. Um, you know, to believe in some powerful, um, loving, guiding force in your life um, is a good thing, not a bad thing. And and I think we've lost that. Um, and you know, I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal on if you if you don't believe in God. You really can't be going around telling your children that you just become dust because they can't handle it. I mean, they need imagine they need their imagination um, to help support them with very with very challenging things that they're going to go through in life. We've taken that away from children. I mean, in America, um, I think there's been a 20% reduction in any attendance in. Uh, religious services, and I think 50% of uh, young people in America under the age of 30 don't identify with any religion. And so we've really lost our spiritual core. And I would say young people have lost their imagination. So in a way, if the world becomes too concrete and too real, then all of these terrible things that we're faced with also become too concrete and too real. Faith is something where we believe in something we can't see or touch, or it's really using our imagination to support us. And I think we're, we're not teaching that to children. By depriving them of some religious belief or faith-based or spiritual belief, we're depriving them of their imaginations to support them in crisis.
0: That's interesting. And you hinted there, too, that it gives a sense of community. Um, uh, Loneliness, particularly it seems for teenage girls in Western countries, uh, and strikingly in middle and upper income families as well, is almost a pandemic. Uh, And and that loss of community and of being plugged in seems extraordinary. And perhaps, in fact, counterintuitively, the... uh, the, uh, uh, the internet and social media gave us the technology we thought for people to be better connected than ever, but we're less connected at the levels that really matter and sustain and fulfil and give us that sense of community and belonging and uh, and of being loved and being able to be love others.
1: I talk a lot in the second book about how we're we're more connected to virtual communities than real ones. Meaning, children used to play with other children, and uh, and again, it's been even harder in COVID for for kids. But um, you know, the idea that you had real contact with your peers um, was critical for development, for social emotional development. And today, much of the um, much of the contact that kids have is digital and virtual. And you know, I think to a certain extent. Technology is to blame for that. Um, You know, we, you know, we we have these devices that kids can substitute for real contact. But, you know, one of the main reasons for that, and nobody talks about this, is we put such incredible pressure on children academically um, that we don't leave them time for real contact. They only have time for virtual contact. You know, if they have this intense pressure to do homework at six years old, when are they going to go and just hang out in their backyard and kick a ball around with a friend and go on a swing set and and do nothing? Um, and, and I think so we are as much to blame as parents and as a society for cornering our children into this kind of it's digital technology or no contact at all you know because the truth is in my generation we you know there wasn't as much academic pressure you know you wanted to do okay in school you know if your parents expected you to do well enough but they also gave you lots of free time to play my afternoons were not spent doing homework they were spent playing Um, That also builds resilience to have that time with your peers face to face to play. We have basically scheduled play out of our children's lives. And so they are left with what are they left with digital technology?
0: Uh, I wonder whether we haven't scheduled romance out of their lives as well.
1: We have as well. I mean, there are studies, I I write for, uh, I'm a contributing editor to the Institute for Family Studies, and they talk about it all the time, how young people are not coupling off. They're hooking up, but they're not connecting.
0: Well, it's a, a grim picture, but Erica, you've given us fantastic content, so much to think about, so well presented and based in evidence. Can I in conclusion, ask you, are you optimistic or pessimistic? I mean, plainly, those who have ears to hear uh, can learn a great deal and can put it into practice, and there will be people doing that. And if there's just one child out there who develops uh, properly because of your work, that will have made it worthwhile. But on the broader picture, are you optimistic that there, there'll be a turnaround, that you hit a sort of rock bottom and people come to their senses? Or do you think we've bogged ourselves so badly that, as Malcolm Mugridge put it, a uh, you know, great British thinker and speaker in your country some 45 years ago, he said he wondered whether we hadn't reached the point of no return. We we're eating ourselves out from within. This is a civilizational issue as I see it, because our, our future depends on the people who are going to make it happen.
1: I, I, I'm optimistic as a person. I am a person of faith not just religious faith, but I am an optimistic person. And I believe that the more people are educated about their choices, the better choices people will make. Um, I'm big on education. And so I write these books, trying to reach as many people as I can. And I am hopeful. Um, I don't think we've hit rock bottom yet. I think that we have quite a way to go still down uh, before people are really frightened. I mean, it's sort of like how frightened do they need to be before governments make changes? I mean, in America, uh, you know, there's there are bills for three months of paid maternity leave. And I'm, you know, jumping up and down and waving my arms going, three months is just when your baby wakes up. That isn't going to secure that baby's emotion. That's not going to create an emotionally secure baby. Um, and so, again, it's not until I think the worst of the worst where maybe governments, maybe corporations, um, you know, they get involved and they say, wait a second, you know, we ha- we are raising a, a population of ill young people i mean and that's costly it's costly as a society emotionally but it's costly too it's financially costly to have yes, such a, to have such an ill population to have so many people suffering from mental illness is not good for society it can't be good so and it, i think it's not until we hit rock bottom that really there's the possibility. Um, I hope I'm around to see that the up, the uptick, um, where we come back from it and really, you know, um, identify the things that, you know, I'm always saying what we need to do. We need to keep mothers or primary caregivers with babies as long as possible. And that is not three months. (laughs) So, but I am hopeful. I I remain hopeful.
0: Well, that's important. That says something about the way presumably that you were raised when you were very young Uh, (laughs) so look you've been incredibly generous with your time and what gold you've given us so so thank you so very very much
1: thank you john thank you for for having me
0: you've been listening to john anderson direct for further content visit johnanderson.net.au